Have thy own way, Lord. What a beautiful song. What a beautiful prayer as we prepare ourselves this morning to open the book of Acts and uh, finish chapter one of this, of this book. We've been in the book of Acts for those of you who are joining us this morning for the first time. Uh, we have been in the book of Acts for about four weeks. Today is actually the fourth week. When you think of this book, what is the one major event that you think of as being major? Come on, I, I'm giving you a Q1. It's Pentecost, right? We all want to get there. We want to get to chapter 2 quickly. We want to remember that often. But what's amazing, Luke is taking his time. Luke is taking his time, waiting to tell us some key details before Pentecost begins. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We're glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. Um, but Pentecost is about to happen, but not yet. Luke is telling us a few important instructions. What happens before Pentecost? Chapter 1 is pretty long, and we should take some time through it. That's why we've taken four Sundays to go through just chapter 1. And you're doing the math, and you realize there's 28 chapters. If we take four chapters per uh, four sermons per chapter, we will be here in a, for a long while. It's about 120 sermons. It's about three years. Give and take with, with taking Easter and Christmas and those kind of things. Well, we don't know how long we'll be through the book of Acts. Um, typically, I do have a plan for the whole book, but uh, this time around, I said, you know what, I'm just going to go Sunday, one Sunday at a time, and uh, we're going to go through this book nicely and uh, patiently. Jesus told his disciples, wait. Go in Jerusalem and wait there before the Holy Spirit will come, until the Holy Spirit will be descended. Between the time Jesus ascended to the Father and the, the event of Pentecost, there were 10 days. 10 days of waiting. So not a very long time. And yet, this time of waiting was critical. James Montgomery Boyce pointed out that this waiting time before Pentecost parallels with the book of Joshua. As soon as Joshua leads the people of Israel to cross the Jordan River, and they're finally into the land of Canaan after 40 plus years, they're finally in the land of Canaan, and they should be ready to start conquering it. One command God gives them to do as soon as they cross the Jordan River is wait. Wait for what? Two things. Celebrate the Passover. And consecrate yourself, the whole camp, to me by circumcising those who have not been circumcised. Wait. In a similar way, the book of Acts, before we get to Pentecost, has this time of waiting. Now, for us, modern people in the 21st century, the idea of waiting sounds like and seems like a waste. We are the generation characterized by the slogan, don't just sit there. Do something. 
right? And we want to do something, and we want God to do something. When God is not doing something, we tend to think that something must be wrong. Or nothing important is happening. Or things are just not going well. We all like to get to Pentecost. 3,000 people added. That's the kind of ministry we want to sign up for. That's the kind of age of the church we want to live in. But waiting? Nothing major happening? And yet this is what transpires before Pentecost. Friends, we cannot get to Pentecost without seeing what was going on as the disciples waited in Jerusalem. You can't skip the time of waiting. It's part of God's plan. Even when we don't understand it. Even when we don't get it. So with that introduction, I'd like to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 1. We will start from verse 12 all the way to verse 26. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, uh, we may, you may find this passage on page number 945. 945. The book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 12. I will be reading from the NIV translation. And here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simeon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, and along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With reward, with the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field where um, there he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For Peter said, It is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. 
show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in a word of prayer and asking the Holy Spirit to help us understand what the Spirit wants to speak to us this morning. We need his guidance. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the revelation you have given to us. We thank you that you made possible for us to have an account of what transpired prior to Pentecost. We pray that this word may encourage us, this word may challenge us. We pray that this word may speak to us your voice so that we may be drawn to you in fresh ways. In the name of Christ we pray, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, let me say very clearly once again, we cannot get to Pentecost without seeing what was going on as the disciples waited in Jerusalem. Waiting is part of what was happening on Pentecost. So don't belittle times of waiting. We may or may not understand what God is doing. Actually, most of the time, times of waiting are characterized by not knowing what God is doing. Not understanding what He's doing. And since we don't know or understand what God is doing, we tend to think that it's wasted time. It's not that big of a deal. It's sort of a filler. Friend, that may be true in our culture. That may, that may be true how society looks at waiting time. But that's not how God looks at this time. Times of waiting are critical preparations, even though we may not see it clearly. If you like taking notes, there are three points I'd like to draw your attention to this text as we look at this time of waiting. What is it characterized by? Commitment to unity in prayer. Commitment to unity in prayer. Commitment to examine the scriptures. Commitment to examine the scriptures. And third, commitment to biblical leadership. Commitment to biblical leadership. When Jesus died, and this is commitment to unity in prayer, when Jesus died, remember what the disciples did? They were all scattered. Thomas was away from them even on the first day of the resurrection. Later, some of them went back to their old habits of fishing. But now that Jesus ascended, these disciples are all together. No more scattering. No more taking care of our stuff first. Instead, they're all committed to being together. And what do they devote themselves to when they're together? Prayer. Look at verse 14. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Another way of saying this is, they were all devoted with one mind to prayer. So he was not just devoted as individuals, you know, each of us doing our own little gig, our own little thing, but devoted as a group, devoted together to pray. Some of us can be devoted to prayer. 
I mean, all of us officially are, are supposed to pray. We know that. Some of us are actually devoted to prayer. But that's not what Acts 1 is talking about. Acts 1 is talking about everyone together they were devoted together to prayer. No prayer campaigns. Just simply attention together for prayer. What a worthy goal for us to have as a church. Devotion to prayer together. Not a prayer department. Not a prayer ministry with a sign-up sheet. Who wants to pray? No sign-up sheets. Everybody is committed to pray. And commitment, not simply in our private closets. Not simply committed to pray on our own time, wherever we are during the week. We're committed to get together as one body to pray. I told the deacons this past week as we were gathering and, and discussing areas of emphasis for this year. Um, by the way, in the March church body meeting, we'll present some goals for, for the church. And this past week in our deacon meeting, we talked about it. And one of the things I, I sense the Lord leading us to pursue in, in greater ways this year is an emphasis on prayer. And specifically, I'd like to get back the Sunday night evening prayer hour, focusing on prayer, where we would gather together as one body, as one mind around prayer. Now, after the deacon meeting was over, I got an email from James, a personal testimony about the power of corporate prayer. It was just like a confirmation. This is, this is the kind of stuff we need to be doing. So I thought, as an illustration, instead of me telling you the, the story that James wrote to us, I asked James to come up and share that testimony. So James, would you come up now and share to us what I read around at, at midnight, pretty much when I got done from deacon meetings. This is what the Lord has impressed on James to read and to write. Hi, my name is James Filan. Uh, some of you know me, some of you don't, but... Uh, me and my wife have been coming to this church since uh, 2004. Uh, we've been uh, married since 2006. We have a little boy named Matthew. He's six years old. And uh, my wife and I have been separated for two years. And uh, her faith and belief in God has been a huge struggle. And uh, what I want to share with you guys is uh, on December 1st, 2013, uh, we had a church-wide prayer where we all prayed together as a church family in the back. And uh, we prayed together as a church for many issues concerning our church family and for spreading God's message through other means. Uh, specifically for my family, we prayed that uh, for B. Falon to soften her heart towards God and also for myself for wisdom and perseverance in fighting for my marriage and to be faithful to God. So... God has answered those two prayers. My wife Beatrice is praying more and more as a family with Matthew and I, and she went to a healing seminar at Austin Baptist Church recently, and she met a member of this church for lunch. She also has spent time, a lot of time with Matthew and, and myself as a family. 
This past week, she met me for lunch and became very vulnerable to me and I with her, and she wanted to meet again. As for myself, I have kept my wedding ring on for quite some time, and I have kept my body pure. I have met and talked with many men from this church and, from, and other people from all walks of life, and I mean some very random people. Some people had strong words of encouragement, some had their own stories, and uh, some have gone through divorce and shared with me lessons that they have learned and wish that they did different. God was spoken in a lot of those conversations. My own son has even encouraged me not to give up, and that was powerful. Uh, I, have, I also have complete empathy for people who, who are single and live alone. I share these two things because God answered them, and my family still needs help reconciling and healing. I almost feel like, like, please change your prayer, because God answered those, and now it's like, what's next? But this also gave me a huge boost in confidence in prayer, because it's like, wow, really worry about nothing and pray about everything, and then watch God work. I do feel closer to all of you in this church and slowly have gotten to know each one of you and your lives. It seems like this circumstance has got me to be part of the family, the church family, and I think about you guys and your lives, and I'm grateful for each one of you. Thank you. James keeps uh, this prayer guide that we gave on December 1st with him. Praise the Lord, James. I'll give it back to you. We must be committed to pray. And what I want to say, and I know, I know many of you here in this church are committed to pray. I know that. But what I, I want to ask you as a church, why don't we make this be committed together to pray, to actually do it together? There's power when we meet together to pray. So I'm not a big fan of, of prayer chains and, you know, organizing prayer campaigns. Why don't we just make it simple? Meet to pray. That's it. That's, that's a challenge. That's what the disciples did. It's amazing to see a member of our own congregation experience that power of prayer and the, the boost of confidence in prayer from, from that meeting on December 1st. And we'll have a few others of that church-wide prayer hour in the mornings until we can start our evening prayer night. But I, wanted, I want us commit, to commit ourselves to pray. I love what Lloyd-Jones, he wrote a little tract. Lloyd-Jones, if you don't know him, get to know him. He's, an, uh, he's like the, the Billy Graham of, of Europe of last century. He wrote a little um, tract called Conversion, Psychological and Spiritual, and it, in it he says, I would affirm that much of the modern approach to evangelism with its techniques and methods is unnecessary if we really believed in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and his application of God's message. And then he goes on to talk about prayer. I would affirm that much of the modern approach to evangelism with its techniques and methods is unnecessary if we really believed in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and his application of God's message. And then a question he asks is, should we not concentrate more as the church has done through the centuries upon praying for and laying the basis of Christian instruction for revival as it has been described in the Bible? 
we have changed these methods of scripture with church growth methods and other techniques of getting the word out. And there's a call for the church that the more we become edgy about techniques, the less we're praying. And I want us to reverse that. Don't worry about the techniques. Don't worry about the latest gadgets in evangelism. Just let's start with prayer and believe that when the church gathers to pray, the Holy Spirit can do things we cannot plan for. We want to do this this year to grow. We want to grow this year now in our evangelism and witnessing. Every member, not just church programs. Um, those are important. Don't get me wrong. Um, but when we talk about growing in our evangelism and outreach, I want us to grow in our confidence and practice of actually speaking the gospel, of actually en engaging guilty sinners in conversation about their spiritual condition. So what will be our strategy to accomplish this goal? May I recommend that we do what the disciples did right after the ascension before Pentecost? Take prayer to a new level of seriousness. I pray that we would have members of our own congregation who would say, you know what, I know Sundays, it's nice to have Sunday afternoons off, but we're, we're committing ourselves to come and pray. Make this a real deal. We want to commit to pray together. Yes, we'll be equipping and training you as members to speak the gospel, but no equipping and no training can take the place of the unction of the Holy Spirit. He can make us witnesses. I was amazed, encouraged to see James hearing more of, of how he's sharing the gospel with people because we're praying about it. It's amazing how others among us see that as well, um, and we feel encouraged to share the gospel. So, friends, we want to focus on commitment to prayer. Eckhart Schnabel also said, for the church leaders and for the church as a whole, prayer is not a duty. It's a joyful privilege. It's not a chore that can be taken care of by one-liners between praise songs, but a passionate desire for the presence of God. That's, that's what the disciples were doing as they were waiting. That's what I want us to do as a church. Second thing, a second focus what the disciples did, they examined the scriptures, a commitment to examine the scriptures. First focus was commitment to unity in prayer. Second focus, commitment to examine the scriptures. Now this point is not explicitly stated in the passage, but it's explicitly illustrated in verse 15. Notice how Peter starts off his address to the group. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Or in other words, another translation is, it was necessary for Scripture to be fulfilled. And then Peter talks not only about Judas, but Peter goes to two psalms and quotes two psalms word by word from Psalm 69, verse 25, and, the, and Psalm 109, verse 8. And then by the way, when Peter gets to preach his first sermon, his first sermon is full of quotations from the Old Testament. Now how... And why did Peter do this? How would he know that Scripture was fulfilled? How did Peter know that it was necessary for such events to happen? How did the disciples know about examining the Old Testament for the significance of these events? Not just Pentecost, but even Judas. How did Peter know? Do you remember Jesus 
as he was walking with two disciples on the way to Emmaus? Do you know what Jesus did to them on that walk? Let me point to you, Luke chapter 24, verse 25. He said to them, Jesus with two disciples, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus, on the way to Emmaus, has given them a study of the Old Testament. So when we come to Acts 1, even though Luke does not tell us that the disciples devoted themselves to, the, to examine the Old Testament, Peter's initiative gives us away. Now Judas' action had produced a degree of crisis. He, one of the closest of the disciples, he who was even the treasurer among the twelve, he was the one who betrayed Jesus, and he hanged himself on a tree. And Luke tells us that there was a, even a property purchase with his money, and the property was called Field of Blood. So in the whole land, this was known, this remained as, as, a, as a rumor, as a reputation. One of the twelve, look at what happened. What, what hope is there for this new news about Jesus to start spreading when this is a kind of beginning it has with Judas hanging himself, betraying Jesus? Where were the disciples? Where were they going to go to understand the significance of those events? How to answer the objections of people? Peter goes to Scripture. Peter goes to examine the scripture to understand, is there anything in the Bible that might tell us about these events? So they examine the scriptures. Now, you remember last week we said, what was the one passage in the Old Testament that pointed to the ascension? Last week. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And Peter got that. Because he'll quote it again in chapter 2. But right before chapter, Psalm 110, it's Psalm 109. And that is one of the two Psalms Peter quotes here as he talks about Judas. In other words, dear friends, Peter and the apostles and the disciples and the women and Mary and the brothers of Jesus who were gathered on that day or for those 10 days, they were examining the scriptures to understand what was going on in their own time and see how that might have been predicted, how that might have been something spoken of in the Holy Scripture. Can people around you see that you're committed to examine the Scriptures? When a crisis happens, or when we deal with a difficult situation, are you the person who says, let's go to the Bible and see what it has to say for us? Or do you feel like you know it all? Like there's nothing in the Bible for you and for your situation. There's nothing God can speak to you. Friends, the second thing these disciples were committed to is they were committed to examine the Scriptures. And Peter looks at Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Both of them have multiple references 
beyond David to Christ our Lord. I encourage you to go and, and read those Psalms for yourself entirely. We read some of it in our service uh, earlier, Psalm 69. But I want to I point you a few verses from Psalm 109, the other one that Peter quoted. It starts off this way, and it first refers to David, but I want you to hear echoes of Jesus as well. Be not silent, O God of my praise. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me. But I am a man of prayer. This is what David wrote. I wonder if this is where the disciples got the idea of being committed to prayer. In the midst of affliction, in the midst of not knowing where to turn because of crises, because of, of hardships, you turn to Scripture and you find there an encouragement to turn to prayer. Friends, the devotion to study the Scripture and the devotion to pray go hand in hand. Friends, does Scripture affect your prayer life? And does your prayer life affect your Scripture reading? Do you combine these two together? Scripture not only should affect our prayers, Scripture also should affect our actions and decisions. So even though the second point is not explicitly stated, it is illustrated by Peter's initiative to explain their crisis by going to the Scriptures. And it's also to point forward as a solution by going to the Scriptures. And Scriptures pointed them to replace Judas. And the third commitment I want to point to you is commitment to biblical leadership. It's because of Psalm 109, verse 8, which says, May another take his place. That Peter will lead this group of 12 or 11, along with the women, along with Mary, along with Jesus' brothers, to select a new leader in the place of Judas. I'd like to look at the questions why they do that and how did they do that? Why did they do that and how? Why was a replacement needed? On one side, the scripture says it. But why? They still had 11 disciples. It's not like it was a one-man show where if the guy in charge leaves, you really are left with nothing, but you have to replace him. And by the way, in the book of Acts, we will see that church leadership is led by a plurality, not by one guy in charge. We'll see that throughout the book. This is just a hint here. But the completion of the 12 was critical for at least three reasons. And I want to point them out very briefly. It was because they were to be the official witnesses. They were the official witnesses. As Christ's disciples, they will testify to the historical truthfulness of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and his ascension. Now, there are other eyewitnesses of the resurrection. There are other eyewitnesses who have been with Jesus. Even these, in this situation, they found two candidates. So it's not a matter of finding the 12, the only 12 who were eyewitnesses for the entire period. No, there were other options. Why didn't they say, hey, both of you guys qualify, let's have you both. Let's just have 13 instead of 12. It'll make it better and bigger, right? But that's not the point. 
the role of a complete group of 12 was critical for a second reason. Not just because they were the official witnesses. The second reason is they were to be the nucleus of a restored Israel. The nucleus of a restored Israel. Um, Jesus in Luke 22, earlier in the gospel, he says to his disciples, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. I confer on you a kingdom. Just as my father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There had to be 12. Why? Because there are 12 tribes of Israel. They couldn't be 13. So it's not a coincidence that right after Pentecost happens, the first major challenge that these 12 experience is a conflict with the established leadership of Israel. The political leaders, the Jews, even though in power socially, they become proven empty of God's authority. While these apostles, these 12 apostles, become Israel's true spiritual leaders, appointed by Christ himself. There is a change of leadership, not just between Matthias and Judas. There's a change of leadership between the old guard and the new. And a new guard has to start off with a full number representing the tribes of Israel. Eckhart Schnabel says the identity of the church as the people of God is tied to the twelve as a symbolic representative of Israel and of God's kingdom, which is now being restored. That's why the completion of the twelve is critical because they are the nucleus of a restored Israel. The third reason they are critical is because as the nucleus of the restored Israel, the twelve will be the authoritative teachers. In chapter 2, the, the new converts are committed to the apostles' teaching. When Paul gets converted, he goes up to Jerusalem to be examined by the apostles to make sure that his ministry and his message is aligning itself with the truth. The point, dear friends, is that these reasons explain why it was necessary for Judas to be replaced. Their role as the twelve was very unique, so unique that they were unrepeatable. When, when James dies in chapter 12 of the book of Acts, he's no longer replaced. Why? Because the role of the 12 was only for one season. It was for one time. That's it. So it's very, very unique. But the bottom line is that these disciples were committed to conform their leadership according to how Scripture demanded Questions of how we think through church leadership are not unimportant. One of the things I have shared this past week with our deacons, with deacon body is that this year I would like for us to consider how we can think more scripturally and biblically about church leadership. And the book of Acts will challenge us through that question. But the other question I'd like for us to look at is the how. How did these disciples go through this, uh, through this process? We, had, we knew three reasons why they chose a replacement, and only this one time and no other times. But how did they go about it? And you know the reason, you know the biggest thing. The one thing you get stuck on, we get stuck on, is they cast lots. Should we do church votes the same way as casting lots? Well, I would 
I would like for us to not get stuck on just the idea of casting lots. There are three quick steps that they go through, and I, and I want us to point, go through that first really quickly. The first thing they clarify is they clarify the criterion of who qualifies for this leadership role. Not anybody and everybody will do it. Only certain people can qualify for it. And that qualification is spelled out by Peter in verse 21. One of the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. In light of this unique criterion of being eyewitnesses during Jesus' entire ministry, only two men qualify. Now what's amazing in this qualification and the nomination of the two is that among that group, Jesus' brothers were also there. Among the 120 that were gathered before Pentecost, Jesus' brothers were there too. Now humanly speaking, we could say very easily, why not just choose one of Jesus' brothers? It'd be so cool, so neat, right? You know, he's, he's Jesus' half-brother. By the way, for those of you who ever think that Mary was forever a remained a virgin, this is one of the passages that clearly points against that option. Um, but why not just choose one of Jesus' brothers? He's got some really good, close family ties. But that's not how church leadership is chosen. Not based on family ties or on connections, as who's connected to who. There is a criterion, and only two people of the 120 actually are nominated, making us assume that possibly only those two might have actually fulfilled that criterion. So the two names are nominated. Which one should they choose? The next thing they do. So the first is they clarify the criterion, who qualifies. Second thing they do is they pray. We should not be surprised by this by now. But what they pray is even more important. Look at verse 24. They pray to know which of these two men the Lord has already chosen. Their prayer makes it clear that they are interested to get the man God has chosen, even though both people met the qualification. So when we choose leaders, do we choose people simply because we like them? People that fit our grid? Or people that simply are well-connected? Or worse, people that fit the success grid of the business world? When we come to choosing leaders in the church, we must realize that God is so interested in the life of the church that He is calling specific leaders to lead the church. We should pray not only for what we want God to do, but we should pray that God would do what He has already planned to do. There's such a different attitude in that. And the third step is they cast lots. Now, why do they cast lots? In the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 33, says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Why do they cast a lot? It was their way to show that they're letting God do the choosing. Now, should we do the same today? In the book of Acts, at no other place later after this point or later in the New Testament do we see this process ever repeated again. But 
again, after this point, the 12 no longer need to be replaced. There's a special situation for the 12. When church leadership roles are considered in the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament gives us very clear lists of qualifications and clear expectations of what these leaders are called to do. We're given clear instruction to examine these qualifications to those we consider. Here's the bottom line, dear friends. The presence of this event in the book of Acts, of being committed to biblical leadership as God ordained it, points to how important spiritual leadership is in the church, how important spiritual leadership is even prior to Pentecost. God is restoring Israel. God is restoring his people, and he's doing so by restoring the leadership it's a plurality of leadership. It's not a one-man show, not the CEO model. And we will see this pattern explicitly in the book of Acts. But friends, when we think of, of wanting to get to Pentecost, let's get there quickly. God says, wait. There's a few key things I want you to get. Commitment to unity in prayer. Commitment to examine the scriptures. Commitment to biblical leadership. And when these disciples do these things, they're getting themselves ready for what God will do on Pentecost. Friends, I pray that the, the glory of God may continue to shine through the church. And I pray that if you're here this morning and the Lord may have said something to you, so your heart may have been pricked about something you have heard, you want to respond in some way, you have questions, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the, at the, end of the service. But the glorious gospel that God has entrusted to the church is to proclaim to all nations that Jesus will come again. That Jesus was born for us. He lived a life of perfect perfectness, perfect perfection, sinlessness. He died on a cross, taking upon himself our sins, taking upon himself the wrath of God, which our sins triggered, so that those who turn away from their sins and trust into Christ, trust their hearts and lives upon Christ, they may receive the new life that Christ purchased for us. And three days later, he was resurrected from the dead to prove that he indeed has authority to bring to us a new life. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father to tell us that he does indeed have authority to rule over all creation, and he will come again. This is a glorious gospel. Friends, we remember, we proclaim. If you're here today and you'd like to know more about this gospel, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who have made a profession of that faith through baptism, through repentance, for us now, we are called to wait upon the Lord, for He will do great things. Wait in prayer. Wait and examine the Scriptures. Wait through choosing biblical leadership. Pray that God will do this among us this year in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you jo join with me in a word of prayer? Gracious Father, we praise you that in the gospel you give us a picture of the beauty of your bride, the church. We praise you that in the, in the book of Acts we see how this church is being shaped and formed. Father, thank you for the time of waiting prior to Pentecost. And thank you for the great lessons that you teach your church even before Pentecost. I pray that we would learn these lessons well 
so that we in the power of the Holy Spirit may be a beacon, may be a shining light to the nations, so that the nations and the ends of the earth may come to know your great gospel and may have the hope that when Christ returns, we can say and sing the praises of our Savior and Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And sing with us.